Go ahead and uh, grab your Bibles. You can turn to Psalm 98. We're going to look at Psalm 98 again tonight. So you can flip there, Psalm chapter 98, and keep your pinky there. We're going to read that, but we're also going to flip later to Genesis 3, so just kind of keep, keep that handy. Psalm 98. Here, uh, these are the words of God. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we have come now to this part of our worship gathering uh, where we open up your word. We open up your word with hearts full of expectancy. We know that only your Holy Spirit can illuminate the text for us, and so we trust him to do just that for us. Fill us with grace unmeasured, Lord, as we exalt your Son's name in the world. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, as you know, the Christmas season is in full swing, and like me, you have probably noticed that while you are out and about doing your shopping, that Christmas music fills our stores with unending praise towards God. Whether it is Starbucks, Wegmans, or your favorite store, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is being promoted through the music that is played. And, interestingly, most people don't even care to think through the ramifications of what's being heard. One of the songs that I have heard on multiple occasions, um, providentially, while I was writing this sermon, it came on when I was uh, downtown at Deja Brew there. The song that I heard uh, that we just sang was Joy to the World. What is interesting about this time of year is that the cultural memory of what Christmas is really about simply will not go away. One can talk about seasonal cheer, uh, happy holidays, and season greetings all one wants, but the truth of Christmas is inescapable. You simply cannot hide from the implications of Christmas. No man can escape this truth. Take the hymn, Joy to the World, as a prime example. Um, we looked at this hymn last week, and we showed how um, Isaac Watts borrowed this text from Psalm 98 to, to basically write that hymn to describe the coming of Jesus Christ at Christmas. It is not a song about the second coming of Jesus when he consummates the kingdom and he turns it over to the Father. No, this song is about the birth of Jesus. Joy to the world. Why? The Lord is come. The Lord is 
come. That's what we looked at last week to sort of recap that message and and then set up tonight's message. Um, Recall that we looked at the fact that Jesus's birth was a warning shot to the powers and principalities. Jesus's birth was a warning shot to the powers and principalities. That's um, that's why Matthew tells us the story of Herod's clearly disturbed disposition the way he does. Jesus was born a king and everyone knew it, even Herod, and that should bother all kings. This warning shot should tip off the rulers of the world and cause them to think twice about their activities. So get a clue and get one quickly, in other words. In a time when Christmas is reduced to nostalgic sentimentality, we need to remember that Christmas is a ferocious declaration that the king is come. Christmas is a ferocious declaration that the king is come. This means that judgment has come into the world, and that judgment is the light of Jesus Christ shown in the darkness. That text that uh, Jordan read and also the text from John chapter 3 talks about um, from Jesus' own lips, right, from from the gospel of John chapter 3, that that is the judgment. The light has shown into the darkness, and that's what Psalm 98 verse nine is talking about as well when the Lord comes to judge the earth. Christmas is not only a warning shot, it's a full declaration of war. When Jesus came, God initiated his reclamation of things that were taken by Satan's sin and death. Um, The arrival of the Messiah in history was God's battle plan to undo Satan's schemes and reclaim the nation's for Christ. I'll say that again. The arrival of the Messiah in history, this is Christmas, right? The arrival of this king was God's battle plan. It was God's battle plan to undo Satan's schemes, Satan's plot, and reclaim the nations for Christ. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Verse 2. So yes, there are nice things, good things that we ought to remember about Christmas. The silent, holy night, the wise men, the shepherds, and the wonders of the incarnation, the star in the sky, and so on. But we mustn't forget that there are some harder parts to Christmas, and that includes the warning shot. Now, I mentioned last week that one of the other tactics of the Christmas battle plan was God's restoration rather, of our calling. So he restored our calling in, in, in the gospel. And it's also the assurance of victory in history. The assurance of victory in history. The fact that Jesus Christ was born laid in a manger where cows feed was God's victory. God showed himself victorious, and we are to think of that way, think of history that way as well. Contrary to our pessimistic, um, um, pessimistic, pessimillennialists who like to think that the world is going to hell in a proverbial handbasket. Um, not so. Now, remember, the Dominion Covenant was never rescinded. The Dominion Covenant from Genesis 2, was never rescinded. It was never rescinded. God instructed Adam and Eve to build culture and to create a social order that reflects heaven. That's what they were told to do. They were told to build culture 
and create a social order that reflects heaven. Now that calling was never revoked, and we would do well to remember that Christmas is the restoration of that calling. Christmas is the restoration of the Dominion Covenant. As men are regenerated towards obedience in all areas of life, we'll come back to that in a minute. Now, keep in mind the context of Psalm 98. We are told to sing. We're told to make a joyful noise. We're told to break forth into joyous song. We are to sing praises with instruments in our hands. Um, we're also told again to make more joyful noise. And one, one thing beneath all of this is notice the instruction for creation to do the same thing. All of creation is invited to join the song. All of creation is invited to join the song. They are told to do the same thing. Um, the sea is told to roar with songs of praise. The rivers are told to clap. In the hills, the hills are urged to sing as well. In other words, creation is a choir that sings to the glory of God. Creation is a choir that sings to the glory of God. What is assumed in, in Psalm 98, and we kind of touched on that last week, is a doctrine of creation. God is the sovereign. Um, he has created all things. He has shown his salvation in history and creation, men and women and children. We are to praise God for it. We are to praise God for his covenant faithfulness, to praise his, him for his righteousness, to praise him because of his sovereignty, his rulership, his governing of the, of the universe. We are to praise God for his mercy and his love. In light of um, th this text here in Psalm 98 and the hymn Joy to the World, one of the things, and that's what we're going to focus on in this message, but one of the things about creation that we must keep in mind is the fact that it was subjected to futility. Creation itself, when sin entered into the world, Creation was subjected to futility. Um, go ahead, if you have your Bible, flip back to the book of Genesis. We'll go to Genesis 3. And this, kids, will be a, a great reminder for you, so make sure you listen very carefully. Genesis chapter 3. Um, we're going to pick it up in verse 8, but I want to give you the, the, the backstory really quickly before we read and start in verse 8. God created everything ex nihilo. All right? Can you guys say that with me? Ex nihilo? Yeah, good job, kids. Ex nihilo. God created everything ex nihilo, which simply means that God created everything out of nothing. God didn't have to pick up a shovel and find some dirt and throw it together and make the world. God didn't do that. God created everything out of nothing. God spoke and it came into existence. That's how powerful God is. So he created everything out of nothing. Out of nothing is ex nihilo is the Latin. So time, space, and matter was nothing, and then suddenly it became something because God's speech, God's speech, the Lord Jesus Christ, made it happen, made it so. So God made everything. He made the, the um, birds, he made fish, he made everything, and on the sixth day, the crown of his creation was Adam and Eve. God made man. He created man. 
Um, they were, uh, Adam and Eve were charged with the task of working and keeping the garden. They were um, in charge of building uh, this culture and establishing this social order uh, that reflects the will and the doctrines of God. And just so you know, they were doing quite okay until Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3, history took a turn. The serpent brought temptation, if you guys remember the serpent being the devil, brought temptation to the eyes of Adam and Eve. And while Eve was deceived, and thus Adam, Adam being our federal head, and it was his disobedience that basically brought sinful autonomy into the world. Adam and Eve sinning in the garden brought this desire for autonomy, this for self-law, that's what the word means, into the world. Um, this, this autonomy, this self-law, was man's desire to be his own ethical grid maker. Humans began to basically want to live their lives apart from God, and apart from His covenant, and apart from His law word. When they ate of the fruit, do you guys remember what happened when Adam and Eve um, took the forbidden fruit? When they ate of the fruit, the Bible says their eyes were opened, and then they knew that they were naked. They were ashamed. They felt bad. They hid from God. They experienced that shame and that contempt, contempt for the very first time. And then they hid from God. Look at verse 8. Genesis 3, verse 8. So this is after they um, were tempted by Satan and, and they partook of the forbidden fruit, as we call it. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, Well, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, Well, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground. Notice that word. Cursed is the ground. Because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. What is clear from this text is that the world was subjected to futility. That's Paul's language in Romans 8.20. The world, all of creation, was cursed by the sovereign God because of the sin of Adam and Eve and because of you and I and our sin. 
This curse was the removal of blessing that God had given. Work would become difficult. Childbearing would be difficult. Sickness would then become a reality. Sin would manifest itself in ways unimaginable. And now because of the curse, our bodies groan and await redemption. The ultimate curse, death itself, would plague humanity. So, what is the curse? That's the question. What is the curse? And here's the answer. The curse is God's covenantal sanctions on a disobedient people. The curse of God in Genesis 3, because of man's rebellion, is covenantal sanctions on a disobedient people. God's curse on creation and on humanity is a sovereign judgment for their sin. Sin isn't just something that happens in our hearts and in our minds. Sin manifests itself in our actions. And when men and women violate the covenant, God brings his wrath to bear on the world and on man. Now the question then, and we're going to ask a few of these questions, becomes this. How far did the curse go? If we're going to sing joy to the world and we're excited about the blessings of Christ going far as the curse is found, how far did this curse, did these covenantal sanctions of God, how far did they go? Now, Joy to the World, the song says, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. That's the curse from Genesis 3. Watts continues in his song, He comes to make the blessings flow far as the curse is found. God's cursing, as we have seen, is a true and real thing. God's covenant sanctions have been manifested in history. And the, the most obvious one that you see, that you experience and understand, is death. How far did the curse go? Simply put, God's curse touches all of creation. God's curse touches all of creation. God's covenant rule in the world as the Lord is as extensive and comprehensive as his sovereignty. In other words, the vastness of the curse, the all-encompassing nature of the curse, the vastness of the curse is comparable, uh, comparable, it correlates to the vastness of his covenant. The vastness of the curse correlates to the vastness of his covenant. God's covenant engulfs all of creation. And there is not one place in this universe where God is not sovereign, which means that this curse that we're talking about is brought to bear on everything that he is sovereign over. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, their relationship with God, with each other, with their own person, and the world was severely disrupted. So think about Genesis 3, and these are the four areas, the four areas of disruption. Sin entered into their relationship with God. That's the first severed relationship with God, with each other. So there was um, now a hostility between the husband and the wife. The third thing, their own person, themselves, how they viewed themselves as image bearers of God has now become a broken thing. And lastly, their relationship with the world, with creation, with physical creation, and with others, of course. The image of God and man, when Adam and Eve sinned, the image of God and man wasn't completely vanquished, but it was severely twisted. 
Man was now estranged from God. He was now exiled from the garden, and his work would now be hard. Man would have to work with sweat on his brow. Childbearing would be difficult. The man's physical death, um, dying, would be imminent. It would just happen. Because man is now estranged and alienated in his unregenerate state, his relationships would be difficult. Marriage would be a challenge. Parenting, we snicker, right? Parenting would be a challenge. All aspects of man's existence would become um, onerously burdensome. Which means that covenant breaking is not without severe consequence. Covenant breaking would not be without serious and severe consequences. Now, we really do live in a world full of problems. We acknowledge that. We, we do not put our head in the sands and pretend that everything's quite all right. We readily acknowledge that we have problems. We, we know that. It doesn't take long to see that on television or read it in the newspaper. We live in a world that doesn't fully trust Jesus Christ, and because of it, we have quite a variety of quandaries. We have the ever-increasing problem of statism and its necessary counterpart, the police state. We still murder our children in the womb, and we still have pro-life Republicans funding it. We still get taxed on everything but our thoughts, and we still allow humanistic philosophy to run rampant in our already problematic public school system. We have a pornography epidemic fueled by a sexually perverse generation of fatherlessness, And on top of that, we have soft men in the church who don't want to fight any of it. We have problems, and we have lots of them. But like math problems, there are solutions. There are objective answers that are outside the reach of autonomous men. There are answers found in the Word of God. So how far did the curse go? The simple answer is it went everywhere. The the curse of God on creation went everywhere, whether it's metaphysical or physical. Uh, Anywhere you can think of, the curse went. From, From birth to death, the curse is evident. From inside out, from front to back, the curse of sin is found in every nook and cranny of this universe. The curse of sin is found in every nook and cranny of this universe. Now, lest you think that there's no hope, we need to ask another question. How does Jesus undo the curse? How does Jesus Christ and Him crucified undo the curse? How does, how does Advent season rectify this far-reaching obstacle? How does the gospel give real-life, real-time solutions to this widespread sin problem? The coming of Jesus Christ at Christmas was to make the blessings of God go far as the curse is found. It is also, it just so happens that the curse is found everywhere, which means that the blessings of Jesus Christ must go everywhere too. The point of the gospel of Jesus Christ, listen carefully, the point of the gospel, if somebody asks you that question, kids, you can tell them, well, what's the point of the gospel? Here's the point of the gospel. Worldwide blessing. The point of the gospel is worldwide blessing. That's why all of creation is told to rejoice. The kingdom of God's purpose in the world is to invade everywhere the curse is gone. 
The kingdom of God's purpose is to invade everywhere that the curse has gone, which means that we must actively resist and oppose any pietistic attempts at truncating this gospel message. For many um, evangelicals, the gospel serves the sole purpose of getting a person out of hell and into heaven. That's, that's what usually passes. What's the gospel? Oh, it's that thing you do and believe where it gets you out of hell and you get to go to heaven when you die. As if that's it. And that's why they call it soul winning. But since this curse didn't just sever man's relationship with God, though it indeed did this as well, we have to beckon men to come to Christ and come and, and all of the man come to him. I don't, I don't like the term soul winning. Um, because men have more than just a soul. They have a body. They have a family. They, they have friends. They have a job. Uh, they have a civil government. Um, men do not only sin in their hearts. Sin manifests itself. The curse manifests itself in everything. Remember that that's, the curse has gone everywhere. And this means that we have to have a bigger gospel. We have to have a bigger gospel. We have to invite people to have all of Christ for all of life. It's never some of Christ for some of life. This is the truncated gospel that we are communicating when we refuse to take the gospel as far as the curse is found. So our efforts as a church family, our efforts are more than just trying to get more people in here. We don't want to pile more. <laughs> we don't want to pile more truncated Christians in this house who think that the only thing that matters is going to heaven when you die. That's that's not what we're trying to do. The Bible is not a manual that describes what you should do when you get to heaven. You ever thought about it like that? The Bible is not a manual that tells you what to do when you get to the pearly gates. No, it's for the here and it's for the now, and it's for all of here and it's for all of now. This truncated message is fueled by erroneous pietism uh, and a radical two-kingdom teaching that separates Jesus from that which is rightfully His. Um, What we want as a church fellowship here in Northern Virginia is to have a robust gospel that actually goes everywhere the curse is found. If we're going to sing it, if we're going to say it, if we're going to believe in it, we should probably practice it too. We want a gospel, a robust gospel of the kingdom that goes far as the curse is found. We do not want a gospel that does nothing for the church, nothing for the family, only serves the individual self, and nothing for the civil sphere. Jesus is Lord. His blessings spill out over the banks and seep into everything. That's our gospel. Our gospel gets into everything. It gets into literally every single thing. So how does Jesus undo the curse? How does the problem of Genesis 3 get rectified when Jesus comes? Well, the answer is very simple. Jesus became a curse for us. Jesus Christ was crucified on a tree treated like a cursed sinner so that actually cursed sinners could be forgiven. It's very easy to see how this blessing undoes the curse. And in Jesus' death, his substitutionary death, we die. 
Jesus did not die so that you could live. He died so that you could die with him. So if you want to live with Jesus, you have to die with him first. You have to join him on the cross. You have to join him in the tomb. Your death stench body must be dead and buried. And only when the Holy Spirit renews your heart can you be then raised with Christ. In fact, that's, that's actually what regeneration is. You are brought to new life. You are raised with Christ. The death and resurrection of Christ is the key to this undoing of the curse. And since this gospel we preach is the gospel of the kingdom, we now find ourselves in a position to help infiltrate the badlands with all of this light that we have in the gospel. Which means we have to ask one more question. How do we participate in this undoing of the curse? We've repented, we've trusted Christ, we believe on Him for salvation. The Holy Spirit has changed our hearts, has made us new. How do we, how do we get to participate in the undoing of this curse far, you know, as far as the curse is found? How do we get to take that blessing out into where this, um, the creation that's been cursed? You know, you, you might be thinking, okay, so the, the death and resu- resurrection of Christ, his current session in heaven, he's seated on the throne of David. All right, great. All that's how sinners are restored to God. And and you might be thinking, well, I don't want to have a truncated gospel message because that's what, what you just said about that really bothered me, and I want none of it. So what should I do? Let me tell you very simply how you, even kids, children, listen, how you even get to participate. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Right? He's come to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. Here's how you get to participate in this. Are you ready? I have a lengthy list, and I'm going to fire them off. So listen carefully. Here's how you get to do this. You get to read your Bible. You get to sweep the floor. You get to pray to God, you get to change diapers, make a turkey sandwich, or peanut butter and jelly if you're my son Nathan over here. You get to clean your garage, you get to paint the walls, you get to scroll through your Facebook newsfeed. you get to write letters and books, and you can even write a note, note to your spouse. You get to gather as the church to sing, to hear the word of God proclaimed. You get to invite your neighbor for a cookout. You get to drink a beer for the glory of God. You get to play golf. You get to fix the radiator. You get to comb your hair. You get to brush your teeth. You get to watch Christmas movies. Amen. You get to eat delicious cookies. You get to eat delicious gluten-free cookies. You get to sip on some peppermint mochas. You get to walk the dog. You get to read a book. You go camping. You go hiking. You purchase a house. You purchase land. You buy a car. You buy an iPad. You visit museums. You clean the bathroom. You homeschool your children. And you make stuff. Simply put... You get to participate and enjoy all of your life because the moment you become a completely brand new, born again Christian, guess what? Everything you do now matters. Everything you do matters. Every nap you take, every song you sing, all of it, and I mean all of it, counts for the kingdom of God. You get to build a social order that infiltrates every other social order. You get to fight for justice. And guess what you you know what you can do? You can enjoy a stack of pancakes all for the glory of God. 
Here at Cross and Crown, we strongly believe in faith for all of life. We believe that self-government, family government, church government, civil government, they're God's ordained spheres, and they're all underneath the Lordship of Christ, and we get to participate in all of them. We get to build that which Christ has given us, and we get to do it with joy. We get to create businesses, write software, sell stuff, make money. We get to enjoy free market capitalism and fight for it, all to the glory of God. So what we need right now is a fully orbed view of the gospel of the kingdom of God. The kind of, the kind of gospel worldview that affirms that all of the sins and sorrows, all of the thorns that infest the ground, the entirety of the curse on everything, all of it is dealt with by God and His Christ. The sooner we can affirm that, the sooner we can affirm that it's the gospel of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, we, the sooner we can get to work on building this social order. Now, we are not radical, altruistic, pie-in-the-sky people here. We really do believe that Christ's blessings go deeper and deeper than the already deep problems of the curse. And why is that? Why can we say with confidence that God's grace goes deeper still? Because God is the sovereign, and that curse only goes as far as God says it should go. And if he says that curse is to go everywhere into the world, into all creation, how far does the gospel go? It goes into every issue, everything you can think of, every philosophy, every view on economics, every view on government, anything. It goes deeper. And this world is not a sinking ship. It's a fractured piece of fine china that Jesus Christ is putting back together. The purpose of the gospel of the kingdom of God is to bring peace everywhere that sin has touched. Everywhere that Satan has tainted, maligned, and tried to usurp the glory of God on earth, the gospel brings peace there. It brings peace to broken families. It brings peace to disordered um, churches. It brings healing to the person and all of the person. And one final concluding thought. Why is it joy to the world? Why is it joy? When we say joy to the world, why are we saying joy? Why is it joy? Why aren't we saying peace to the world? Why didn't Watts write that? Why, did, why, why not mercy to the world? Or why not justice to the world and so forth? We say joy to the world, to the earth, because God is himself joy. And only in him can you have it. Only in Him can you have it. Only in Him can you have the joy of not having to succumb to the fear of men. Only in Christ, only in Him can you have joy. Joy covers all the bases. Joy is what you have when when people are at peace with God and one another, who have experienced His grace and His mercy, love and compassion. God is Himself infinite joy. And that's what you get when the gospel takes root and blossoms in this creation and everywhere. So we want joy to go to all peoples because, because joy, true unending joy, is the aim of Christ for all of the nations, far as the curse is found. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we rejoice this day that you have chosen to magnify your Son. We are glad and we praise you for bringing us this joy.
We are thankful, Lord Jesus, that you came. You came to rescue that which was lost, blind, and befuddled. We ask, Lord, that you would magnify your name here in Warrington, in Northern Virginia, and in all the world. That your spirit would, would bring regeneration to the ends of the earth. That you would continue to rule the world with truth and grace. And continue to make the nations prove the glories of your righteousness. We long for the day when we get to witness the discipling of the nations. Help us to plant those seeds now, so that in due time the harvest you shall reap. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.